You know, one of the most important things in our lives are relationships. God created us to be relational. God created us. He designed us to have relationship with him and relationships with others. That's why when Jesus was asked, what, are the, what is the greatest commandment in all the, of all the commandments God has given? What is the greatest commandment? And Jesus said there's actually two. The first is that you would love God, and the second is that you would love others. And Jesus said that because relationships are so vitally important. But here's the reality. We live in a world that is full of broken relationships. We live in a world that is full of fractured relationships. And the reality is that every time you and I see a broken relationship, whether it's a relationship with God, a relationship within the church, or friends and family, regardless of where we see that broken relationship, we know that that is not what God desires. God desires for reconciliation and restoration in relationships. But the reality is we live among tons and tons of broken relationships. And no doubt that many of you in this room are experiencing some form of broken relationship in your own life. Because here's the reality, that God desires that our relationships be whole. And there's nothing more beautiful, nothing more powerful than when you and I see a relationship that was fractured become reconciled. A relationship that was broken become redeemed. It's one of those things that we all rejoice in, isn't it? In fact, Jesus said that all of heaven rejoices when one sinner gets their relationship with God right. But we all know and have experienced when a marriage is broken and that marriage becomes reconciled, the beauty of that moment, and we rejoice in that moment. When friends and family are, are in fractured relationships and those relationships are made whole, there's nothing more beautiful than that. Part of the problem is that so often we don't stick around long enough in the relationships to mend them, to reconcile them. We live in a culture that has just said, you know what, once the relationship gets tough, I'm out, I'm done, I'm washing my hands of this relationship. And in Genesis 45 and 46, we see one of the most powerful, one of the most beautiful stories of a family reconciliation that's ever been recorded in human history. Joseph and his brothers and his father Jacob are reconciled. His brothers are reconciled. He's restored into relationship with his, with his father. And this story in Genesis 45 and 46, it provides hope. It provides encouragement. It provides hope for us in the midst of our own broken relationships. Joseph's reconciliation with his brothers is incredibly unique because none of us have experienced the circumstances that Joseph, is, Joseph has experienced. Now, okay, I, mean, I, I get it. M many of you have been resented at times. But none of you have had a plot to kill you yet. Or maybe you have, I don't know. But I doubt it. Some of you have had people be jealous of you, but I don't know if they've sold you into slavery. You've had people harm you before. All of us have had that, but few of us 
have been falsely imprisoned. All of us have have endured hardship and difficulties, but few of us have had to do so without relief for two decades. And I seriously doubt that any of us have experienced all those things all at the same time. But that's exactly what Joseph did. He went through every single one of those things. And you and I have all heard horror stories, haven't we? We've heard horror stories of people that have gone through being sold into slavery with human trafficking these days. We've heard horror stories of of people that have plotted to, to, to kill a loved one. We've heard horror stories where there's been no reconciliation. We've heard all of those things. But Joseph's story is not a horror story. Joseph's story is a story of redemption. Joseph's story is a story of reconciliation. Joseph's story is one where he gets to come full circle. He gets to come face to face with those that had harmed him, his own brothers. The beauty of Joseph's story is that he gets to offer forgiveness. And he gets to see God's purposes behind all the circumstances that he had to endure. Now, we left off last week in Genesis 44, where, where if you remember the story, Judah has stepped up to the plate and said, listen, do not take Benjamin into slavery. Do not make Benjamin the, the, the one that is guilty of stealing Joseph's silver cup. Judah steps up and says, take me instead. Well, at that point, we see that Joseph can't contain it anymore. Genesis 45, verse 1. Then Joseph could not control himself for all who stood by him. So he's seen enough. He's like, I, I've seen enough. I've got, to, I've got to come clean. I've got to tell my brothers who I am. And he cried out, make everyone get out for me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept out loud so that the Egyptians heard it. And the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. You think? Imagine the surprise. It's me, Joseph. And their jaw drops. They, they're speechless. They have no words. Why? Because they thought that their brother was either a slave or dead. Those were the two options. The option that never crossed their minds that he was the man that was standing before them as the governor of Egypt. But then everything begins to click. Then everything begins to make sense. Now, now they know why Benjamin was sought after. Now they know why Benjamin was shown favor by this Egyptian. Now they know how this Egyptian man knew their birth order. Now they they know why it seemed like God was using this Egyptian to judge them for their sins against their brother Joseph. And the reason is this man is not an Egyptian. He's actually their brother Joseph. And then fear and anxiety overwhelmed them. Because standing before them is the brother that they plotted to kill the brother that they sold into slavery, the brother that they had forsaken is standing before them as the second most powerful man in the not-so-free world. Joseph, 
who has the power to do whatever he wants to to his brothers. And they know that he could and probably should have them imprisoned or killed themselves. And they know that. And that's why they're dismayed. That's why they're full of fear. They're full of anxiety. Because they know their sin against their brother. And they know what he could do as a result of that. But then I want you to see, beginning in verse 4, Joseph begins to reveal his theology. He begins to reveal what he believes about God. Look at verse 4. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. Probably not the, the response they were expecting. The response they were probably expecting is, Get these men out of here. Get them out of my presence. But he says, no, come near to me. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into, whom you sold into Egypt. Verse 5. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in this land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth and to keep alive for for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he made me a father to Pharaoh. He made me a father to Pharaoh. And Lord of all of Pharaoh's house and ruler over all of the land of Egypt. Here in these few verses, we find one of the most comprehensive examples of the relationship between God's sovereignty and man's free will. We see in this text one of the most comprehensive looks at God's sovereignty and man's free will. See, on one hand, Joseph attributes his brother's actions of selling him into slavery as God's sovereign hand at work. Notice three times he says that God was the one that sent him to Egypt. He says, God's the one that did this. You didn't do this. God did this. But on the other hand, Joseph attributes his brother's actions to their own sinful free will. Look what he said. I am your brother, Joseph, whom what? You. You're the ones that did this. You're the ones that sold me into slavery. So you have this idea where God is sovereign and God's the one that sent me to Egypt. But then on the other hand, Joseph is saying, but you are the ones that did it. So you have this this intermingling of God's sovereignty and man's free will. In other words, what Joseph is saying is that God's sovereignty is not an excuse for the brother's sin against him. We can't blame God's sovereignty. It doesn't give us an out because God uses our sin for good. It doesn't give us an out. Well, look what God did. Yeah, I, I, I blew up this relationship, but look, God did something here. That's not an excuse. We don't get that excuse. I did this bad thing, but God turned it to good, like Romans 8 says. That's not an excuse for our sin, and that's what Joseph is showing us. We don't get a pass. Joseph's brothers didn't get a pass because God used their sinful actions to accomplish his purposes. God did not force Joseph's brothers to do the things that they did. God did did not force them to sell him into slavery. But what God did 
was he used their evil actions to accomplish his purposes and his plan. God's sovereignty and man's free will. So this begs the question, doesn't it? Why? Why would God, in all of his sovereignty, use sinful men to carry out his will? Why would he do that? As a pastor, if I've been asked that question once, I've been asked it a thousand times. Why would God, in his sovereignty, use sinful men to accomplish his will and his purposes? Well, the response is this. Where is God going to find a sinless man? See, apart from Jesus Christ, every single one of us have sinned. Paul said it this way. He said, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That means you're a sinner. That means I'm a sinner. That means when I blow up relationships, it is my sin that is doing that. That means when I make mistakes, it is my sin. I am a sinner. So listen to this. Everything, everything, everything that God does, everything that he does, in accomplishing his will and accomplishing his purposes involves sinful men. Just like you and just like me. So the reason God uses sinful men is because there are no sinless men. And everything God does, he does through the actions of sinful men and sinful women. And then in Genesis 45, beginning in verse 9, what happens is Joseph begins to lay out his plan. He says, I've got a plan, and that plan is for you to go and bring back the family. Go get my father Jacob and the rest of the family and bring them to Egypt. And he tells them that there are five more years of famine. And so by coming to Egypt, I will be able to provide for you. And Joseph says, not only that, I will be able to be near you. Do you see the grace and the mercy that Joseph is extending to his brothers who sold him into slavery? He's saying, listen, I know what you've done. And I know that it was God's sovereign hand and through his providence that he used that to put me in the position that I'm in so that I can provide for you, so that I can be near you. See, the only way that we're able to overcome the damage that people do in our lives through relationships is realizing that God's sovereign hand and God's providence is always at work. We may not always see it. Like Joseph gets an opportunity to see it here. Sometimes we may not see it like Joseph for decades. It took him 20 years to see God's plan unfold. Think about that. 20 years before Joseph is able to say, listen, God is the one that sent me to Egypt. But once he grasps that, he's offering grace and mercy and love towards his brothers. Then picking up in verse 16. I want you to see as we read this, this next paragraph, I want you to see the direct correlation between when Jacob and his family enter Egypt and when 
Israel, the nation, exits Egypt. And we're going to walk through that in just a few moments. But listen to this. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this, load your beast and go back to the land of Canaan and take your father and your households and come to me and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you shall eat the fat of the land. In verse 19, and you, Joseph, are commanded to say, do this. Take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. Now, Notice the parallels. Notice what is going on when, between Israel's entrance into Egypt and the exodus, which will occur 400 years later. When Israel, when Jacob, who's also known as Israel, enters into the land of Egypt, when the family settles there, Mo, uh, Pharaoh gives them permission to come joyfully. When they exit, when they leave, when God's people leave Egypt, a different Pharaoh, another Pharaoh, reluctantly gives Moses permission to go. When they come to Egypt, Joseph, a Hebrew, is the head of Pharaoh's house. When they leave Egypt, Moses, a Hebrew, was raised in a different Pharaoh's house by Pharaoh's daughter. When they enter Egypt, God uses Joseph's interpretation of dreams to grant him favor with Pharaoh. When they exit Egypt, God uses Moses and the plagues to harden Pharaoh's heart. When Joseph's family enters Egypt, Pharaoh lavishes them with wealth. When Israel, the nation, leaves Egypt, the Hebrews plunder the Egyptians' wealth. When they enter, Pharaoh escorts them with his chariots, and when they leave, Pharaoh's chariots pursue them to the Red Sea. Look at the sovereign hand of God at work. There's one more distinction. It's the most important distinction of them all, and it is this. That when God's people enter Egypt, they are nothing but a small clan, a family consisting of 70 people. We had a family get together yesterday. And at that family get together, we probably had 50 people. That's roughly the size of this family as they enter into Egypt. Many of you, when you have family get-togethers, you're around that many people. Look around this room right now. Imagine this is the group. This number in here is the group of people that entered in to Egypt. But when they leave, God will have made them into a nation. God will have fulfilled his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they will leave Egypt as a nation numbering in the millions. In other words, this, this journey to Egypt was necessary for God to accomplish his promise and to fulfill his promise of making Israel into a great nation. Remember the promises God gave to Abraham. I will make you a great nation. I will give you a great land, and through your descendants will come a great blessing to all people. God is beginning to fulfill that promise, and he's doing so by taking his people 
and moving them to Egypt. Well, Joseph's brothers, they go back to Canaan. They tell their father. And as you can imagine, it's too good. the news is too good to be true. He doesn't believe him. In fact, it says that his heart grew faint, that his heart went numb, which basically means he probably just dropped to his knees like in, in complete unbelief. News too good to be true. There's no way that his, brother is, uh, that his son is alive and this news that his brothers were telling him are true, but, but then he, they convince him that they are, and then three things in Jacob's world change. After 20 years, he finally realizes that his son is alive. But not only is his son alive, God has prospered him. And listen, if you're a dad in this room, you want nothing more than for your kids to prosper. You want nothing more for your children to be successful, for them to love God and, and love others and be successful in whatever they do. And Jacob is finding out that Joseph, his son, is now the governor of the entire land of Egypt. What an incredible rejoicing must have gone. But here's the irony in that. Remember, God had promised Jacob that I will make you a great nation. In Jacob's day, what was the great nation? Egypt. Egypt was the great nation in the land in that day. So get this. So what Jacob just found out is that his son is now second in command of the greatest nation in the world at the time. And God is now bringing them into that nation. So just the irony of what's going on here in Jacob's life. But not only that, he found, this is the beauty of what he discovers. Because the reality is, knowing that Joseph is alive, knowing that Joseph is prospering, should have and would have been enough for Jacob. But God in his grace and God in his mercy makes a way for Joseph and Jacob to be reunited. And that way is to bring the entire family to Egypt. And then listen to what Jacob does in chapter 46, verse 1. So Israel, that's Jacob. Remember, God had given him a covenant name of Israel. He changed his name and said, you will now be called Israel. So Israel, so whenever you're reading this story and it goes back from Jacob to Israel, just remember the same person, same, same dude. One is his covenant name that God is, is, uh, has given him, and that is Israel. So Israel took his journey with all that he had, and he came to Beersheba. Now, Beersheba is the border between the promised land of Canaan and the land of Egypt. And so when he gets to the border, what does he do? He offers sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. Now, this verse tells us so much. There's so much in this verse. First of all, we know that we, we see here that Jacob knows. I mean, he's an old man at this point. He knows he's going to die in Egypt. But his entire life, he has held on to the hope of God's promise. His entire life, he has held on to this promise that God had made him, that I'm going to make you a great nation, and I'm going to give you a great land. And right now, before he leaves Beersheba, before he leaves the land of Canaan and goes into the land of Egypt, he pauses to worship God. But at that moment, he's actually leaving the land that God had promised. He's actually leaving the land, the promised land. You see, Jacob, in this moment, knows that God's promises are bigger than him. 
Jacob's hope is not in the land, it is in the God of the land. God, he knows that God's promises aren't just for the here and now. And what we see in Jacob's life is this transformation where he's beginning to trust and obey God in his old age. Now we know, as we studied his, his life in Genesis, we know that he's not always lived like a godly man. Jacob has had his issues, like many of us have had our issues. But in this moment, Jacob is trusting, he's following, he's worshiping God knowing that he's leaving the land that God had promised. See, ultimately what Jacob's hope is in is in God's faithfulness. His hope is not in the land. His hope is in God's promise that he will make him a, a great nation. And he knows that this promise is multi-generational. It started with his grandfather, Abraham. It was passed on to his father, Isaac. Now it has come to him, Jacob, and he knows that they're not a great nation yet. I mean, that can't happen in three generations. But he knows that God's promise will be fulfilled as time goes on. So what he's doing, he's stopping and worshiping, and he's trusting God to do what only God can do. And then God speaks. And God reveals his plan to Jacob. And he says this. God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob, here I am. And this is what Jacob responded, which is always a good response to God. When God speaks to you, you say, yep, God, I'm right here. Speak, I'll do whatever you want me to do, I'll obey. So here's what he says. Jacob, Jacob, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Listen to this. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. For there... I will make you into a great nation. There's the promise of God again. And he says, go to Egypt, and that's where I'm going to do it. In verse 4, I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. So here, God is reminding Jacob of his covenantal promise that I will make you a great nation. God is essentially saying to Jacob, listen, I was faithful to your father, I was faithful to your grandfather, and I will be faithful to you. That's what God's telling him here. I have, I have always been faithful. I will always be faithful. And then he assures Jacob that his presence will go before him. But then there's this odd message that God speaks to, speaks to Jacob in this text, in this verse 4. He says, I myself will go down with you to Egypt and I will bring you back again. And Joseph, your, brother, your son, will close your eyes. What is he saying? And on one hand, what he's saying is that this is going to be a round trip. This isn't a one-way ticket. We're going to go there and we're going to come back. And he says that I'm going to take you down to Egypt and I'm going to bring you back up. But then he says this odd thing that your son, Joseph, is going to close your eyes. In other words, Joseph is going to be with you when you die. What is God saying there? God is telling Jacob, listen, you, Jacob, are going to go into Egypt as the family of Jacob. And you're going to come out of Egypt as the nation of Israel. I'm going to send you in there as Jacob, and I'm going to bring you out as Israel. That's what God's telling him. And notice God doesn't tell him the entire plan. Don't you hate that? Like, that's so frustrating. 
God, why don't you give us the whole plan? Why don't you tell us everything that you're going to do? But he doesn't do that. He didn't do it with Jacob, and he's not doing it with us. He's like, I am in charge. I am in control. He doesn't tell him about the 400 years of oppression and 400 years of bondage. He doesn't tell him that. He leaves that out. He doesn't mention the miraculous exodus. He doesn't talk about the Red Sea. He gives him none of that. He simply says to Jacob what matters most, and this is what matters most for you and I, regardless of what circumstances we're going through, and it is this, that God says to us, I am God. I am in control. You can trust me, and I will bring to pass all that I have promised. Church, that's the hope we have, that God is God that he is in control, that we can trust him, and he will work in our lives to bring about his purposes. Always. Well, Jacob and his family arrive in Egypt. No one stays behind. And we begin to see the beginning of God's promise to make them a great nation. This family of 12, the 12 sons of Jacob, enter into Egypt. And when they leave Egypt, they will be a nation of 12 tribes. That's the mighty hand of God at work. And when we see that church, we should be able to say, you know what? God, you are God. I trust you. You are in control. And I know that you will always, always, always fulfill your promises. Let's skip down to verse 26 in chapter Uh, 46 and it says this and all the persons belonging to Jacob who came to Egypt who were his own descendants not including Jacob's son's wives were 66 persons in all and the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two listen to this all the persons of the house of Jacob who came to Egypt were 70 70 people. That's it. And then chapter 46 ends with a census. You can go and read it yourself. It just walks through the the family lines. It walks through, this was the son of this, and this was the son of this. And it walks through this this genealogy. Now, genealogies are incredibly important in Scripture. But I know that none of you like to read genealogies. Anybody like to read genealogies? Thank you. One, one. Like, I, listen, I get it. I can't pronounce half the names. But here's the importance of genealogies. And here's what, here's what I want you to remember. As you read scripture for yourself, here's what I want you to know. Every time you come across a genealogy, the first thing that should come to your mind is not how do I pronounce these names, but, but this is the thing that should come to mind. This genealogy is in here because God is fulfilling his promise. Here's what I mean. See, back in Genesis 3, God made a promise to Adam and Eve. And God promised Adam and Eve that he would raise up a Messiah. This one person that would come from this woman's seed. And this Messiah would redeem mankind. And this Messiah would overcome and defeat the devil. And so God made that promise. And in order for that promise to be verified, in order for that promise to be proven... There has to be a registry of all the names of that lineage that come from Adam and Eve all the way to the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ. 
And you see that lineage go through Abraham, and you see it go through Isaac, and you see it go through Reuben, and you see through Judah, and you see it on and on and on and on and on. And so every time you see a genealogy in Scripture, all God is doing is saying, listen, I am fulfilling my promises. And if you don't believe me, just go and follow the, line, the lineage of this family. Go and follow the family tree, and you will see that I am completing and fulfilling every single one of my promises. It's a reminder when you read a genealogy or come across them, even if you skip over it, I want you to pause in that moment and say, God, thank you for your faithfulness. Because every genealogy in Scripture is there to remind us of God's faithfulness. Now, I want to close out this morning with just a few takeaways. As we look at this text, chapters 45 and 46, what are some key takeaways that we can that, that we can kind of maybe take with us, maybe apply to our lives. And, and, and you may have your own. These are just some that I came up with. So when I give these, these aren't, you know, these aren't Scripture. These are just perhaps some things that, that have struck me uh, and, and perhaps may strike, uh, strike you. But I know God speaks to each and every one of us individually. But the first one is this, relationships matter. Relationships matter. Listen, I know that this story is not, primarily about the relationships it's really about god's redemptive plan for mankind but yet we can't just bypass these two chapters and think that that relationships don't matter they are incredibly important we have to understand the importance of relationships god created us for relationships god created us for community which means you and i must work hard to maintain our relationships we must fight for our relationships. We need to fight for our marriages, not just in our marriages. We need to fight for our friendships, for our family, not just with them. We need to do our part to bring about reconciliation, to bring about restoration when, when relationships are broken. So what does that mean? First and foremost, it means we got to own our part. Because every single one of us have a part in some form of broken relationship. None of us are immune. We've all done something to hurt someone else. We've all been played our part in, the, in a broken relationship. So the first thing, we, have, we it means we've got to own our junk. Like, we can't make excuses for our part in broken relationships. We've got to own that. And then we have to offer forgiveness where we can. And in order to do that, we have to learn this lost art of talking to other people. Like somehow in our culture, we have lost the ability to have a conversation with someone. Especially a difficult conversation. And we have to regain that. And so first thing I want you to see is just this, this need to, to understand that relationships matter. The second takeaway that I have is this. We need a proper understanding and a proper view of God and a proper view of man. Joseph was able to say the things that he said because he understood who God is and he understood who man is. See, Joseph treated his brothers humbly and graciously 
and offered forgiveness. He wasn't gloating. He wasn't seeking revenge. He was able to acknowledge what was done to him. He was able to acknowledge the harm and the pain and the troubles they put him through. But at the same time, he was able to focus on God's sovereignty and God's providential plan in the midst of all of it. So here's, here's what I would say to you. The, the first and foremost, we have to have a proper view of God. In other words, theology matters. What you and I believe about God matters. And it's incredibly important. Because why? Because it keeps us from accusing God of evil as he works through the sin of, of man's free will. It accuses us, uh, it, it prevents us from seeing God's hand uh, and, 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 and accusing him of doing evil, even though he's working through evil men. See, Joseph could have even said, God, this is all your fault. But he doesn't. Why? Because he knows that God providentially works through man's free will. And so what it does is it allows us, when we have a proper understanding of God and who he is and how he works, it allows us to look at all the circumstances in our life and see that God is working providentially in the midst of all of those. And we can see, begin to see his plan of redemption. We can see how he works in and through our lives, even in the midst of sinful man's free will. Helps us avoid thinking that God's primary job is preventing inconvenience and hardship in our lives. That's not God's job. God's job is not to prevent us from going through difficulties. God's job is to be with us in the midst of those difficulties. That's what he's promised he will do. He never promised he'd keep us from hardship. In fact, James tells us that we should expect hardship. We should expect difficulties. If you're not having difficulties, just wait, they're coming. And so, instead, what do we do? We acknowledge God's sovereignty. We acknowledge God's providence. And we acknowledge God's commitment to do what is best for us. Even if we don't think it's best for us. Because God is in control. And we know that God can work all things, even bad things, for the good. Doesn't mean they're all good, but for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. That's what we rest in when we have a proper view of God. And when we have a proper view of man, it keeps us from thinking more of man than we should. It keeps us from attributing power and authority to men that actually belongs to God. Listen, folks, there is no one that has power over you to make you do something you don't want to do. The reason you join into sin with others is because you actually want to. The reason I join in with sin with others is because I want to do it. Exactly. The devil can't make you do it. Nobody else can make you do it. No one can make you do anything that you don't want to do. It's our sin that causes us. But so what happens is when we have a proper understanding of man, we will realize that man, including ourselves, are sinful, fallen, and broken. People will hurt you. They will hurt us. They will disappoint us. And sometimes they will even bless us. But none of that happens apart from God's providential hand at work. We can't attribute more power and authority to men than they actually have. Third takeaway is this. God will work in ways you won't expect. God will work in ways that you want to. I mean, who would have thought that God's plan would include removing his people 
from the land that he promised them for centuries and then returning them into that land as a great nation. Who would have thought that would be God's plan? None of us would have wrote it out that way. Yet that's exactly what God did. He brought them out of the land to make them a nation, then to send them back into the land. You and I can't comprehend how God works and how God, in God's ways. In fact, Isaiah the prophet wrote this of God, and, he, and God spoke this to him. He says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, my ways are not your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. We know this about God, but why do we expect God to work in our lives in predictable ways? If we know his ways are higher than our ways, his thoughts are higher than our thoughts, why on earth do we insist that he work in ways that we can predict and think that he's going to do it in that way? If anything in studying Genesis and Joseph's story, it should remind us that God's providence is unpredictable. That God's ways are not, we can't predict them. We can just trust them. Fourth thing I want you to see is this. Faith has no expiration date. We see this in Jacob's life. Faith has no expiration date. Jacob's journey reminds us that we will never, never, never get to an age where we no longer have to trust God. In fact, the longer you follow Christ, the more you're going to have to trust him. We never get to an age where we no longer have to trust God. We never get to an age where we no longer have lessons to learn. We never get to an age where we no longer have obstacles to overcome, fears to face, sin to put to death, and journeys to take. Listen, no matter how old you are, either physically or in the faith, You never stop trusting God. We never get to a place where we arrive. We can't say, well, you know what? I've hit retirement years, so I don't have to serve God anymore. Doesn't work that way. Serving God, trusting God, being faithful to God is a full participation sport. No one, none of us, regardless of age, regardless how long we've been following Christ, None of us are asked to sit on the sidelines. That is not an option. Saying that, you know what, I've done my due, my duty, I'm done. That's not an option for any of us. As long as there is blood coursing through your veins, and as long as there is air in your lungs, we must remain active in serving the Lord. We must remain active in being a part of God's redemptive plan. Relationships matter. We we need a proper view of God. And we get that by studying scripture on our own. We need a proper view of man. We need to understand that God's ways are not our ways. And he's going to work in ways that we could never expect. And we need to realize that faith has no expiration date. Let's pray. Father, we, we do uh, thank you so much for allowing us to get a glimpse into Joseph's life. 
And really this, this whole redemptive story that you've laid out for us. And it is not the way we'd expect you to do it. But yet, God, in your wisdom and in your sovereignty, you knew that this was best. And the reality is, Father, there are things that we are going through. There are things that we are experiencing in our own lives. That as we look at them, we're like, God, I don't know why this is happening. I don't know what is going on here, but God, I pray that you would help us to trust you in the midst of it. To realize that you are God and that you are good and that we can trust you. And so, Father, I pray that you would help anyone here this morning that has never placed their faith in Jesus Christ for the first time to to start there. That's where we begin in our faith journey. By trusting that God in his providence and in his plan that he set forth all the way back in Genesis was to send a Messiah, Jesus Christ, to be your redeemer, to die on the cross for your sins so that you could have a relationship with God through him. And Father, we pray that those of us who are followers of you, that Lord, we would have a renewed trust as we study the story of Joseph. We'd have a renewed trust in you, that our faith would be invigorated by the fact that that you did all of this for us. And that you always fulfill your promises, even in ways we don't expect, but you're always constantly fulfilling your promises. So, Father, help us to take this lesson, take this this scripture and apply it to our own lives to actually put it into practice. We pray this in Jesus' name. Church, we're going to have a time to respond, and, and part of that response is going to be communion. Those of you who've been around Freedom long enough, you know that roughly every other week we we, we pause at the end of our service and, and receive communion. It's just an opportunity for us to remember what God has done for us. If you're a guest, we practice what we call open communion, meaning that if you are a follower of Christ, uh, we invite you to participate in communion with us. You don't have to be a member or partner at our church. You just have to be a follower of Jesus. And so this is an opportunity uh, that we have to go and, and, and remember Christ's broken body and his shed blood for our sins. And a reminder that this whole process of redemption started back in Genesis 3. But also I think maybe today there's, there's some other things that we need to deal with first before we receive communion. You know, we talked about this morning about relationships and the importance of relationships. And the reality is that, that if we have broken relationships in our lives, we need to go make those right first. And then come to the table. And some of you are saying, well, Eric, there's no way that person's not here. I can't make it right right now. Then in your own heart, make that commitment and follow through with making that relationship right before you go and receive communion. Which may mean that you need to come and pray for that person, for that relationship to be mended, reconciled, fixed before you receive communion. It may mean that you just need to go and leave and get in your car and go meet them right now, wherever they are. It may mean sending them a text. It may mean whatever that looks like, but that is the priority that we need to get that relationship 
that is broken, mended, and then come to the table. For others of us, it may be that that God is doing something in your life and you just can't see his plan, his sovereignty. You don't know why the things that are happening are happening. And perhaps for before receiving communion, you just need to pause either at your chair, up front here at this at this altar, just as an act of, of, of reverence and an act of submission, just kneeling down and doing that and just saying, God, I don't understand what you're doing now, but I know that you're in control. I don't quite get it right now, but I, I, I get that you are sovereign and I know that that you've got a plan in the midst of this, and perhaps it's just pausing, and that's your response to this message. You just need to pause and say, God, I don't see how you're working. I don't understand it, but I trust you. And the reality is for some of us, for some of us, we've gotten kind of lazy in our serving of serving God. We've kind of gotten lax. And the truth is, it's not just us. I mean, it's it's pretty much a, a pandemic on top of a pandemic within the church. Pandemic shut the doors for a season, and some of us have never really re-engaged in serving like we were before this happened. And perhaps that's you, and maybe this opportunity for you is to, is to reignite your passion to serve Christ, whether it be in children's ministry, in nursery, in students, in any other area within within the life of our church, whether it be in serving your neighbor and serving those outside the walls of the church, whatever God is pressing in on you. Here's the thing I always encourage you to do. If God is pressing in on something, don't wait, just obey. If God's saying, hey, I need to get involved in a ministry here at this church, don't wait, just come talk to me or Kaylin or anybody else about getting into that ministry. Because here's the reality, if you wait, you won't do it. And you may be going, well, what if it's not God telling me? Well, what's the worst that can come out of it? You serve somebody else? Just remember, faith has no expiration date. Serving Christ, worshiping Christ, honoring Christ with our, with our time has no expiration date. We never, no matter how long we've served Christ, no matter how long we've followed Jesus, there's no point where we can say, you know what, I'm done. I don't have to do it anymore. So maybe that's what God's leading you to. Or maybe it's something completely different. But here, as always, just I encourage you to respond and obey whatever the Lord is telling you to do. The church, let's stand. You can remain seated and kneel if you need to deal with some stuff and let God do that. And then when the Lord leads you over the next uh, several minutes of this song, you can, at your leisure, go to any one of the four stations and receive communion and be reminded of what Christ has done for us. Let's stand, let's worship him, and let's do, let's obey whatever he's calling us to obey.